0: Turn with me to Isaiah. Okay, so ushers, or whoever's in the back, uh, conscript, conscripted, uh, you're deputized, and now, now give these to everybody who didn't want them. Um, uh, we have 200 of them, so everyone uh, needs one in their hand, and because, especially because some of them, first of all, I cheated. This is 12 font, sorry, but there are only 30 slides, so, that's a, so, so it's, it'll be kind of in between this morning, but um, there's going to be some stuff in here that I suspect only Pastor Kurt knows, because lead pastors know everything. But the rest of you will not uh, likely know. So um, just come on and pass them down when you see people without them. Um, So, uh, don't forget to pick up your Advent book. Uh, Really remarkable, two or two and a half pages of really, really excellent pastoral and biblical theologians uh, taking us through this Advent time and readings from the scripture. And you will find this week that there'll be multiple of the days that, you, uh, that will resonate with what uh, we're covering this morning. So <clears throat> it was 700 years before Christ, and this, uh, this annoying prophet, Isaiah, by the way, turn to Isaiah, the annoying prophet, actually one of many annoying Hebrew prophets because they told the truth. Um, every once in a while, he would do this really strange thing. Instead of saying, you know, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, you reap what you sow, which is what the prophets always said, and my word always comes true, and you can try to get around my word, you know, the the truth-telling prophet to God's people. Every once in a while, he would have these astounding prophecies of hope. Um... So here we are, the telling of this coming Redeemer, this mighty Deliverer, in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it'll be up here. Here it is The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And then in verse 6, he went on to announce that the great light actually has a name. Interestingly, This flow of names, he calls a name. It all goes together. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Nothing surprising there. but And even the next one's okay. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. There had been lots of Wonderful Counselors in the kings and the prophets, but the child's name will be El Shaddai. The child's name will be Mighty God. Everlasting Father. The child is the father. Ever been confused by the Trinity? Can you imagine? Isaiah must have gone back four times and said, Now, Lord, you got something wrong. The child cannot be the father. And the father said, Shut up and write, Isaiah. (laughs) And so here's this amazing prophecy. The deliverer, the child, will be everlasting father, and he will be prince of peace. So this is just a staggering, right? So the, the, the Israelites who were paying attention at this point, they would have realized that he already talked about this child. He had already given him another name back in chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, great. Uh, it's just a, a page back in mine. Uh, look at back in, uh, in chapter 7, and, and, and a lot of us uh, will, you know, will uh, think of the songs about this. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign... Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name, a name that to them would mean a lot because they understood the Hebrew that underlay, underlay uh, lay this, uh, Emmanuel, a name that we have heard, right? So, so this name, Emmanuel, comes from two, actually a Hebrew phrase, two Hebrew words. The first, I think it'll show up here. The first is Imanu, meaning with or among, and El, of course, meaning God. So you have many, many names like Ezekiel, which we call Ezekiel. That is God in the name of a human. Here we have this this, um, amazing thing that, uh, of course, you probably all know. It means God with us or God among us. Uh, And this name foretold of a day when God himself would come to earth, born just like you and me, And yet, this child would be God in the flesh, dwelling among us, dwelling with us. So, Isaiah prophesied this this incredible reality that the mighty God, the Creator Himself, would be born as a human child. Now, this concept, of course, defies all reason. There, There is nothing like this in all of the history of human thought except here, it just doesn't exist. The gods being human never was anything like this. They'd all been made too. They came out of some primordial soup, every last one of them. But here, the first cause is going to be a baby. So why did God have to do it this way? You talk about a strange way to save the world. But look at this. Here's your first blanks. All right, get out, find your uh, utensils here and Uh, something to set it on so you can write. Um, There are two reasons why God the Son came in human flesh. Number one, only God can save. Parents, only God can save. Listen everybody, only God can save. And Isaiah, in fact, says it a half a dozen times, and all through the Scripture, repeatedly, God says, there is no Savior besides me, none. So everything we pursue to save us, All false gods, only one Savior, one God. And then number two, the second reason is, for God to save, he had to shed his own blood. If you were listening to uh, the part last week from Hebrews where Pastor Josiah was telling us about this, remember he told us that the priests had this horrible job. Did you know the priests never got to sit down? You know why? More, More sheep. More cattle, more, more blood to shed. And it says, not ever did any of that blood ever save anybody from their sins. You know who's the one priest who ever got to sit down? Jesus, the high priest, who's now at the right hand of the Father because no more blood has to be shed. So this is the key. For God to save, he had to shed his own blood. But, but as you know, there's a, there's a price um, that means he has to somehow become human. human. And that's why Christmas, that's why the name Emmanuel is so precious, right? God is with us, so he can save us. Now, I suspect a lot of you already knew everything that I just said. Uh, none of this is a surprise. This is bread and butter, historical, prophetic, messianic prophecy, Jesus then coming and saving the world, being Isaiah's, Mighty God, who was also a child. Um, uh, but uh, if we're anything like a typical congregation, uh, uh, many of, the, uh, of us in the rest of this message are going to get a lot of surprises. It's because for many believers, what I just went through is the whole gospel. Um, if you ask many Christians why Jesus came to earth, this is your next blanks. Pay attention here. The typical Christian answer of why Jesus came to earth is very close to this. Jesus came to the earth to die on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins and go to heaven someday. Period. The gospel. Now, here's the key. This is absolutely right, but it's also absolutely incomplete. You see, there wasn't just one purpose for Jesus coming. There were two. So to clarify this, let's, let's look at the one we just covered. Here's your purpose number one. Write it in to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. Now, this is the great foundation of all salvation history. But many Christians stop here. You see, being saved means nothing more than being forgiven. You've seen the bumper stickers. But this morning, we're going to see how the true gospel is massively more than this. We're going to, this morning, believe it or not, We're going to try to rescue the real gospel from its downsized concept of American salvation. And we'll begin this rescue by establishing the second reason why Jesus came to earth. Purpose number two, write it in, here it is. To make possible the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all of humanity. See, we're going to see that purpose number 2, the holy spirit filling believers with power and purity, isn't just part of the gospel, it's actually the main point of the gospel. Now, the reason this statement sounds so strange is because most of the church in our culture has missed the fact that the Hebrew has a second meaning in Emmanuel. Emmanuel means something different. Um Write this in, it's a key concept. Emmanuel doesn't just mean God with us. Imano also means within us. So notice, it also means God within us. That's right. The fact that the incarnation made it possible for God to be literally with us in human form wasn't even close to being the whole story of the incarnation. Now don't miss this. Think about this. Jesus could have planned to stay here on earth. And he could have stayed, Emmanuel, God with us. He could still be today. Imagine what he could do on the internet. Uh, And think about this. He could have now traveled around the world easily. You can circle the globe in a couple of days by airplane, right? And, And he could have gone to meet every doubter and do exactly what he did for Thomas. He could have said, here, touch the scars, of my resurrected body, yet the scars are there. Feel my side. He could have been so perfect and so flawless in saving the world, um, everyone could meet the resurrected Christ face to face. What a great plan. But if this was the final plan, Emmanuel could be with us, but notice, he couldn't be in us. Because having taken on a physical body, the second person of God being now fully physical, fully human, can't live inside of us. That would create at least difficult, you know, circulation. Okay. I mean, imagine trying to stuff somebody's body inside of your body. You ever seen a ever seen a snake, you know, with the big bulge when it eats a rat that's too big? Some of them actually die. Okay. So I want you to get us to get this in our head. The Son, while he was a physical human on the Earth. He could not be within us. He could only be half a Messiah. He could only be half of Emmanuel. I know, it. I told you, you're gonna need your notes, right? This, is, this classic historic understanding of the second person incarnate is uh, really pretty much been lost on us. So, this is why Jesus said without hesitation, it's better for me to go away it's better. Jesus said that of himself. The perfect first cause Messiah, who had the power to speak a 100 million galaxies into existence, said, I need to go away. Do you realize that's the greatest statement of humility in the history of the universe? I need to get out of the way. Because I can't save you without the Father's full plan, not the way I want to save you. Isn't that amazing? So think about this theological paradox. You ready? Christ came only because if I would have been in big trouble at home if this, I'd have had two pages of notes for you. So I had, this used to be in your notes, but, but notice this paradox. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is absolutely remarkable. Christ came so that he could be with us, and he left so he could be within us. Listen, Emmanuel, if he had come, just come, and hadn't left, wouldn't be the real Emmanuel, wouldn't be the real plan that God had always purposed for the people of the world. Wow. This is mind-boggling, isn't it? So, so notice, uh, a message about Emmanuel, about the incarnation, why am I placing such central emphasis on the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Because this was Jesus' central emphasis, And yet, this emphasis on the spirit-filled life has all but vanished in the American church. Think about this. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that proved that he was a Messiah. He was crucified, paid the price for the sins of the world, then he conquered death by being raised from the dead. So if Jesus agreed with the typical modern gospel, listen up now, here's what he would have said to the church after his resurrection. You got it? He's come incarnate, he's Jesus, he's met the prophecies, he's died, he's bled for our sins, he's been raised from the dead, so here, if the typical understanding of the modern gospel were true, notice what he would have said, here's the typical understanding, write it in, here's your blanks, based upon the facts of my incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, my followers have everything they need, listen, based upon these facts, my followers have everything they need, and they're ready to take the gospel, To the world. But that's not what Jesus said after the resurrection. In a completely unexpected announcement to his followers, he tells them, You're not ready. Now, notice, every one of them could say, I have declared him Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, and I'm saved. 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 I'm saved because I believe the gospel. The first half. That's all they had at that moment. So this is really, really striking. Um, Jesus clearly said, knew that even his resurrection wasn't enough. Just believing that he's that powerful and that God could raise him from the dead. Now, this is why Jesus concludes the gospel of Luke this way. I'll save you some time because we're going to go through some, so many scriptures from going back and forth. Look at Luke 24. Just watch up here that in your notes. You can go back and look at all these, and I hope you will. Now, he said to them, Jesus... These are my words which I spoke while I was with you, that all things that are written about me in the law law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So that's the Bible at that point, right? You know, the Bible that Jesus preached from was the Old Testament. This is the only Bible that he had. Okay, notice. So he said, I'm God with us. I've met every type and prophecy. Every foreshadowing is about me. Then he opened the minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Now notice this. Look at this. At the end of Luke, that should be the last point. And these truths are absolutely enormous. But as essential as they are, they are not the last point he makes. Look at his final point. This is absolutely Crucial, verse 49, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, after the resurrection, despite the fact that Jesus had accomplished everything he came to do, he didn't tell the disciples that they were ready to go. Instead, he commanded them, wait. You ready for this? Just a forgiven follower who believes in the resurrection, Jesus doesn't want them talking to the world about him. Whoa. Guess what you get? American evangelicalism. So this is really, really striking. In Acts chapter 1, look at this. Here comes the, 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 the amazing, precise thing that he wants them to wait for. Look on the, on the uh, screen. Gathering them together from the first chapter of Acts. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Folks, the church, without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is not who Jesus wants to send to save the world. And we'll see why in just a minute. Now, here's the really big point. You ready? Write it in. Here's your blank. Jesus' final command to his followers was to wait for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's his last command. Why? What's the big deal? Two reasons. Reason number one, here's your blanks. Because the main point of the new covenant isn't a set of facts about what Messiah did. The main point of the new covenant is the Spirit-filled life. You see, this is the single greatest difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is exactly what, you ready? This is exactly what the Old Testament foretold. Look at this from Joel chapter two. You may have heard it. This is another annoying prophet who's now giving the most amazing prophecy in history about the third person of the Trinity. Look at this. I will co- it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is it. This is the big deal. This is the big deal in the new covenant. And this leads to the next reason why Jesus commanded his followers to wait. Actually, I, I toned this reason down about three groups of words. So here's the delicate one. Reason number two. Because the followers of Jesus, right? Why did he say wait? Why do we have to have the spirit-filled life? Because the followers of Jesus who believe in him, but haven't been filled by him, are weak and self-centered. American church. Weak, on the run from the forces of darkness, and selfish, Today, there will be people who will listen to preachers who preach to millions of Americans who say, come to Jesus so you can be healthy and wealthy. Come to Jesus because he can make everything just fine for you. We love that kind of thing. That is because we are weak and self-centered. So notice this. The infilling of the Holy Spirit fixes our two big problems. Our lack of power over sin and our selfishness that demands that we get our own way. You see, Jesus loves two-year-olds, but Jesus will never use two-year-olds to save the world. And you know what? (laughs) The church is full of two-year-old Christians. It's still all about me, rolling around on the floor crying. He can't save the world in the way he wants to until there's something that completely changes that two-year-old into him. So, Um, Notice this, the infilling of the Holy Spirit fixes these two big problems, and look how this was dealt with specifically at Pentecost. This is from Acts chapter 2, look at the text. When the day of Pentecost had come, now 50 days later, after the resurrection, when Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent, rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages. In fact, you can look at the list. 17 specific languages of the 17 different people that needed to hear the gospel that day. Remarkable. As the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now notice how the indwelling Spirit deals with our weakness and our sinfulness. Look at this. The violent rushing wind is a metaphor, is a representation of the power of the Spirit. This get out of the way, stuff's flying everywhere. The power, this incredible unlimited power of the Holy Spirit. The power to take on the forces of darkness. The power to make a difference in this world. The power to make it through tough days. The power to make it no matter what. That comes from the Holy Spirit, never from me saying, oh, I'll always follow you, Lord. That consecration needs to happen, but my consecration will never get me through those days. Only the power of the Holy Spirit, only the wind will, ha- will make that happen. And then notice, the fire, the fire on them, that represents purity. It burns the sin and the selfishness out of their hearts. And when this happens, the Holy Spirit transforms our weakness and our selfishness, and he gives us the mind of Christ. He fills us with the perfect love of Jesus. You want to see Stephen, who undoubtedly was as wimpy as everybody else before Pentecost? He goes to his death, and what does he say? He says, the very words of Jesus. And filled with the Holy Spirit, says the text, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Becoming like Jesus. See, look what's missing in the church today. Many believers are trying to live the Christian life based solely upon the fact that they've accepted the truth claims about the Messiah. So they've been converted, and they try to be Christ-like in their own strength. And you know, the most impossible thing in all of the universe to do is for a human to be like Jesus without Jesus being the one doing it for them. In our own strength, we will never be Christ-like we will never be not self-centered. We will never have power to put the forces of the enemy to flight. So, application. This leads to our application. I'll read it twice because um, uh, there's three words in it. So here we go. <clears throat> Perhaps the greatest tragedy in the American church is the call for the people to accept Jesus as Savior without the call to live in the power and the purity of of the spirit-filled life, perhaps the greatest tragedy in the American church is the call for people to accept Jesus as Savior without the call to live in the power and purity of the spirit-filled life. Now, as we begin this application, I want to make a, a, a take a big, big step back. Why did Jesus command the followers to wait for something else after the resurrection? Listen, they were saved, they were born again, and they had all the knowledge they needed. So why the demand that they delay? Here's the answer. Because the true gospel, the whole gospel, isn't just accepting Jesus as Savior. The true gospel includes every believer experiencing the wind and the fire, the power and the purity through the infilling Holy Spirit. It's every believer experiencing the power of the Spirit at Pentecost. So so I want you to track with me really carefully, okay? You ready for this? The modern church has basically been preaching a gospel that actually existed for only 50 days in history. Now, now think this through with me. From the resurrection until Pentecost, the gospel was, Jesus is alive, period. Until Pentecost. Today's church is essentially preaching... What was the gospel for only 50 days in all of history? This is is really mind-boggling to me that we have missed this. Let me explain. Um, Christ's followers had all they needed in terms of knowledge. Okay? But he would not let them go do the Great Commission with a partial gospel. Okay, you ready? Ready? If they hadn't waited for Pentecost, they would have preached conversion without a call to the Spirit-filled life. Ever heard that on TV? So notice, here it is. Here's your blank. Guess what much of the church is preaching today, a partial gospel. Here it is, preaching forgiveness of sin without preaching about the power to break the bondage of sin. Pentecost. See, so why are we surprised that so many of us are so weak in our Christian life? Are we surprised that many of us go from one defeat to another? Are we surprised that so many of us are trapped in a cycle of sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness, sin? Yes, his mercy is unlimited, but that's not the plan. That is not the plan that Jesus had for dying. So... The call to redemption without the call to truly being cleansed from sin ends up with a disaster. (laughs) Is there there any wonder? Is there any wonder why the research from the Christian sociologists for the last 30 years has shown us that on average, the average born-again Christian in America lives no differently than the person who has no faith at all? Why would she, we should be surprised. You know what Christianity is? I've had my sins forgiven and I get to go to heaven someday. Yeehaw. I love to sin and God loves to forgive. We have a great relationship. (laughs) Some of you will get that tomorrow. Um, I mean, that wasn't, please don't take that out of context. That's that's not the plan. Um, So you ready for the key concept? Here it is. Here's the key concept. Here's your blanks. The thrust of the new covenant isn't just justification. I'll explain that term in just a second. The thrust of the new covenant is transformation. Transformation. And it is one of our absolute core values here, if you've ever paid attention. Look on the website. See, justification is a theological term, and it means it's, this is an easy way to remember it. Justify, or justification of my sin is, is Jesus' blood, because I repent and trust in him for salvation, he makes it just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. God looks at me, and he doesn't see my sin, he sees Jesus' perfection. Perfection. What an amazing story, an amazing part of the gospel, but that's just part of the gospel. It's the great news. But listen to what transformation does. It sets us apart. It sanctifies us, the old Greek term for setting apart by the power and purity of Christ so that the world looks on and takes notice and is drawn to him because of the radically transformed lives that they see among believers. Now start looking around. For a real follower of Christ. See, here's a scary thought about the church. A salvation theology that s- stops at justification is no greater than the religion of the Old Testament. Let me say that again. A gospel, a gospel that doesn't teach any more than justification of my sin, forgiveness of my sin, is literally no greater than the religion of the Old Testament. Let let me start by blowing up a biblical misinterpretation. A whole bunch of people think that the difference between the old Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant in Christ is, in the old covenant, they followed the law, and God was pleased. And he kind of, you know, semi-covered them, and it was okay, because they tried. And the new covenant, what's happened is, is that I don't have to follow the law anymore. In fact, I can't follow the law to get myself saved. And Jesus, by grace, justifies my sin. So in the Old Testament, if you worked really hard, you got saved. And nowadays, fortunately, Jesus has us covered just by believing in him. Okay, so th- this, is a, this is a remarkable thing to look at. This, this interpretation is absolutely wrong. Let me read from the New Testament, Romans 4, about Abraham's faith. Look at this. If Abraham was justified by works, it's making the point. Abraham wasn't justified by works. In fact, do you know Abraham was 500 years before Moses? So there wasn't even a Ten Commandments to follow. How's that for God laughing at us by showing how chronologically stupid we are about the Old Testament? There was no law to follow when Abraham was, as we'll see, justified by faith. This is a remarkable part of biblical history. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, isn't that amazing, 4,000 years ago, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, he's gonna contrast now, the person who's working to be good so that they get paid back by being saved. Look, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. I followed you, God, and now you save me. He blows that up. Look, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then this amazing statement in verse 13 of Romans 4, look at this. For the promise to Abraham was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now this is amazing. Three salvation truths from this, that should wake us up. Salvation truth number one. Here's your blank. God's children were saved by faith in the old covenant, and God's children are saved by faith in the new covenant. That's not the difference. See, nobody in any age, in any location, has ever been saved by anything that they did righteously. No one. Noah wasn't saved by being good. He was saved because he walked with God in faith. He responded to what he knew at the time about the God who had come and talked to him. Okay, so, salvation truth number two. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is not justification by faith. Isn't that amazing? You ready for this? The sum total of today's gospel, I get forgiven, so I get to go to heaven? That was Abraham's gospel, He was justified by faith. I began this message, by the way, pointing out that many Christians think that the main point of getting saved is to have our sins forgiven. Notice, Abraham had faith. Abraham was justified. Abraham was saved. And Abraham went to heaven. So this leads us to salvation truth number three. (laughs) Here's the pain. Many Christians today are living with the same impact of salvation in their lives. Listen, church. Many Christians are living today with the same impact of salvation in their lives as a man who lived 2,000 years before the resurrection. Can you imagine making the crucifixion essentially irrelevant? Just like Abraham got saved. They have faith, they're forgiven, and they get to go to heaven. But, But do we actually think that the precious Son of God descended from glory in heaven to be born of a Galilean peasant girl, in filth and in poverty, and then to die on a brutal cross, and then to conquer sin and death, and after all that, his intent was for the cross and the resurrection to have no more impact on us than Abraham's religion? Oh, my. Much of the modern salvation theology has missed the main point of the new covenant. And having done this, many people try to live the Christian life without the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have no more success in living out the will of God than the Israelites did. Notice this. Without the Spirit breathing His life into us, we have a church without power and a church without purity. Imagine this. Let's hope this is not the epitaph on American evangelicalism, but imagine the incarnation the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the long-awaited coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And after all that, we get nothing more than the salvation experience of a man who never had a Bible and who never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Abraham. Forgiven and saved, but nothing else. So, do you realize how far short this falls compared to the incredible magnitude of the salvation that Jesus intended for us to experience? This is the great tragedy. This is the great disaster. And it's the reason why the world around us looks at the church and scoffs at its pathetic impact in our culture. So I'd like to point something out. Apologetics, you may have heard that. It's not apology. It comes from the same Greek root word. But apologetics is the technical term for the process of developing logical responses to the questions that come up about Things like the existence of God, the accuracy of the Bible, the historical truth and reality of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. That is biblical apologetics and historical apologetics. And one of the great byproducts of archaeology and science in the last half century has been this exceptional advances in apologetics, right? The the discovery of the the Dead Sea Scrolls blew away just centuries of blather by by uh, biblical scholars who didn't believe the Bible. I mean, just amazing things that have happened literally in the last half century. So the evidence supporting the truth of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is greater now, think of this, than in any generation since the actual eyewitnesses were alive. We, we can get in here, and you can go through the British Museum and find Proof after proof after proof that the prophecies written before they ever happened in the Old Testament were true in the New tef- te- Testament. We have unbelievable access to amazing apologetics now. So uh, think, think about this, that the eyewitnesses were the only ones that had a greater testimony than us. And because of this widespread sin and hypocrisy in the, in the church, the halfway salvation, it has, friends, made the power of the witness nearly evaporate. And let me give you a common response. It's going to be on the screen. A common response to our really amazing, logical, sophisticated apologetics. You ready for this? I've seen this at the U of A among my faculty friends. Your argument has convinced me that the resurrection may be true, but your life has convinced me that the resurrection doesn't matter. Oh, wow, that is pretty impressive. Why would all of that have happened if Jesus wasn't really alive? Then... Why if he has the power of the resurrection, hasn't he done anything with you? See, truth that makes no difference might as well not be true. Let me say that again. Truth that makes no difference might as well not be true. So here's the great irony, and you can see we're just about done. Like I say, the good news about having notes is you know where we are. Uh, I, I understand that many of you want to make sure you get there before the Baptist or wherever you're going to lunch so you can track. So here it is, a great irony. In the generation that has the greatest apologetics since the apostles were preaching, the lives of many Christians have essentially disqualified their gospel. How is it that the early church had so little knowledge and no resources and such limited tools to spread the gospel, and yet they turned the world upside down with their message. And here's the key concept. This is the take-home message, friends. The greatest apologetic in the world is the life of the truly transformed believer. No one can ever argue against that. A testimony like that can never, ever be wiped out. See, we're supposed to be the living apologetic that lights up a dark world with a light that's so bright and so compelling that they cannot deny what's real in our life even if they don't believe anything about Jesus. Pastor Josiah, come on up. This morning, if you know Jesus, this morning, if you know Jesus, it means that you've been forgiven of your sins and you've accepted Him as your personal Savior. Praise God. The first half of the gospel. It means that you've been justified by faith. Folks, it means that it's just as if I had never done any of those things. Isn't He amazing? Aren't you glad? He knows everything about me and still, it's like I've never done anything wrong. He's so good. It means Emmanuel is with you. You're forgiven. You're justified. You believe he's with you. But let me ask you a question. Is God just with you? Or is he also within you? Filling you, changing you, empowering you, purifying you, freeing you from sin, delivering you from your self-centeredness, and transforming you for his great purposes. To save his world. I suspect that there are some believers here today who are still struggling with the same issues that God was talking to you about months ago, or maybe even years ago, and you're still stuck in the same place. And maybe you've promised them that if He'd forgive you one more time, then you'd change. But you've broken your promises again. And maybe you're trapped in a cycle of defeat and maybe you've lost hope that you can ever really have victory. And so there it is, sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness. Looks just like Abraham. Or maybe you actually are a pretty decent Christian. But you realize that there are still parts of your life that you just don't want to fully give to the Lord. I want you to be thinking now. Open your mind and heart to the Holy Spirit talking, putting fingers on those issues. You know that he wants to take you way deeper and you know that you don't have the kind of power and purity that he needs for you to really make a difference in this world. Here's the great news. If there's some aspect of your life that really needs to change, but you realize that you can't do it and you may have even tried over and over again, then you know what? God has you exactly where he wants you. You've now discovered the need for the second part of Emmanuel. Just being forgiven isn't enough, Lord. It doesn't change me. It just forgives me. Isn't there anything more that can stop this battle? See, God doesn't just want to be with you. He wants to cleanse you through and through. He wants to fill you so full with his power and righteousness that there's no room for anything else. Emmanuel, in his fullness, wants to completely and radically transform your heart and your mind. So when others look at you, you know what they see? You know who they see? They look at you and they see Jesus. None of us will ever be good enough at being holy for anybody to ever see the real Jesus unless he gets us out of the way by his cleansing with fire. So as we end today, let me ask you, is your life an apologetic that announces to the world that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King? Have you allowed the wind and the fire to consume you in such a way that the world looks on and gets thirsty for what you have? Stand with me, church. Everybody who can, please stand. Are you willing to settle for just enough Jesus to get you to heaven someday? Are you satisfied with God just being with you? Or will you only be satisfied when he is in you, filling you to overflowing? Have you only gone halfway with Emmanuel? Or are you willing to go all in, not just forgiven, but you literally in control, making me holy like you, Jesus? This morning, I'm going to open the altars. They're open for those who are ready to allow Christ to do more in you than simply forgiving your sins. They're open for those who are willing to allow the Holy Spirit to come in power and purity so that, listen, so that he rearranges your priorities, and he rearranges your relationships, and he rearranges your desires, and he even rearranges your future. They're open for those who are so desperate for the infilling Christ that walking with him and helping him save his world becomes more important to you than life itself. If you really desire to join Christ in this incredible journey, of the Spirit-filled life. If you want to experience a salvation that takes you way beyond forgiveness into the incredible, ongoing reality of transformation, if you'd like to experience Christ to the full measure that he intended the new covenant to mean, then right now, lay down your will and your plans and your desires and open your heart to the cleansing, empowering work. Be all in by the power of the Spirit. If that's what you want, then come, as Pastor Josiah said.